What makes a sports fanatic? What do we find so appealing about athletic events that they can bring us to tears of joy or despair? If it's just a game, then why do we lose ourselves in it? To find out, we bring together a top athlete, NFL quarterback Andrew Luck, with a literary scholar and philosopher, Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht. My name is Angela Becerra Vidigar, and you're listening to The Human Angle. I'm a literary and cultural scholar, and on this show, I bring you conversations with the people whose job it is to explore the human experience and our place in the world. We talk about current issues and aspects of contemporary culture that matter deeply in our everyday lives, our relationships to each other, and our histories as a diverse human community. Together with experts in fields like literature, history, music, philosophy, and the arts, we put the human back into the humanities. Your hero is a quarterback challenged by the opposing team's defense. In the last fraction of a second before being sacked, with a lineman of the other team literally in his face, he releases the ball into the open air. The world in front of you turns into slow motion, and although the ball may fly toward your section of the stadium, you cannot anticipate where exactly it will go and who may possibly be there to catch it. And so you fear, with the nervous passion of a gambler who has put all his money on one number, that a player of the other team will intercept the pass. But while the spinning ball describes an unlikely curve before your eyes and gradually starts its descent, a player of your team, someone you had not noticed before, suddenly appears near the place where the ball will eventually come down. These two movements, the ball in the air and the running player on the ground emerging from your peripheral vision, converge in a form that reveals itself just as it begins to vanish. The receiver makes the catch, barely, but he makes it, and as he protects the ball with his elbows, he evades the coverage of the opposing team and starts sprinting in a direction that nobody, including yourself of course, would ever have predicted. For a split second, you believe that the fire in his eyes strikes your own eyes. Between these movements, between the player's glance and your perception, the world returns to its usual pace, and you breathe very deeply, your chest almost bursting, so relieved you are, and so proud, and so hopeful after the beautiful play that has now disappeared, never to repeat itself again in real time. The stadium roars, there is no other word, with 50,000 voices and your own, in an organ swell of joy. As you leap to your feet in excitement, you feel swept away in a wave of communal happiness. Later, walking from the stadium back to your car, through the crisp air of the fall evening, exhausted as at no other time during the week, you remember that beautiful play, and once again, without any tension and anxiety over the outcome of the game, it causes your chest to rise and your heart to beat faster. In your recollection, you can recreate its form, and as you hold on to it in memory, you feel an impulse run through your own muscles, as if to embody what your hero achieved. That was Human Angle producer and contributor Tom Winterbottom reading from In Praise of Athletic Beauty, a book about what's behind the centuries-long pull of sports on our emotions. It is written by our first guest today, Professor Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, known to most people as SEP. He is the Albert Gerard Professor of Comparative Literature and French and Italian at Stanford University and an avid sports fanatic. Thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start 
really with the basics of why we're here. I want to hear about your fanaticism for sports. Yeah, I mean, the Stanford football team is clearly among many, many teams that I accompany and many teams that I like. I mean, my children are saying I have about 1,001 best friends. So I have many, many teams in many sports, many athletes that I care about. But the, the core and the center, the most unconditional thing, is the Stanford football team. Okay, my second team of my heart is Borussia Dortmund. That is something like the eternal runner-up in the German Bundesliga in uh, in sports. Now, that, is, that has an interesting biographical aspect. I have been rooting for them since 1956. In 1956, I was eight years old. Uh, that's when they won the German championship for the first time. Then soccer in Germany was an amateur game, but the amateurs had certain perks. And one perk was that after practice, and they practiced twice a week, uh, they could go with their families to a restaurant and they could have dinner for free. And that restaurant was my grandfather's. And one of the things that you refer to in your book is how sporting events become tied up with our personal and collective histories and become markers of sorts in our lives. And... That's exactly what I heard in what you were saying about your, your favorite teams. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why sports have so much historical meaning in our lives? I mean, this penetration of sports events into our private life, this easy possibility of structuring lives, uh, I imagine is something relatively new um, and not only counting back I would also say I'm now, I'm 66, so I'm kind of anticipating my life by Olympics and by Soccer World Cups. To think back, the first team sport event that I ever followed on the radio was the 1954 Soccer World Cup final, which Germany very surprisingly won 3-2 against Hungary. And that is interesting because that doesn't only play a role in my life, that is taken in any history book of the end of post-war in Germany. Yeah, this was nine years after Hitler's death, nine years after the unconditional surrender against the Allies and against the Soviet Union. And it was the first international event in which Germany participated at all. I mean, in the 52 Olympics, they participated, but with a very small team, not in 1948, not in 1950. And all of a sudden, they became world champions. And there was a slogan quoted in German, we sind wieder wer. We are back to being somebody, to being respectable. And that is deeply, deeply rooted, I think, in everybody's memory in Germany, who is my generation, even if she or he was not a soccer fan. So that is, but I think this, this depth of penetration that you're talking about is something relatively new. Even though this historical importance of sport and athletic events is obviously there. You do warn in your book against taking a solely historical perspective and ignoring what you call the presentness okay. of sports. And one of the big ideas that you talk about across many of your works is this um, idea of presence. Could you talk about that a little bit and what this presentness is? Yeah, I mean, I started on the, other, on the other side. I once took a colleague from Stanford, a professor of French, an eminent professor, to a football game because he couldn't believe that I was so interested in football. I mean, we're both from the student revolution generation. I'm a 68 generation, baby boomer generation. And when we were young, I always was a sports fan, but that was not indicated. If you were a lefty in 1968, sports was evil. Sports was a 
capitalist conspiracy. So I took him to that game. And after one quarter, he tells me, you know, I have figured out what that is. This is an allegory of capitalism. This is all about gaining space against somebody. And my point is, and this is why I took it as a starting point, that I think this obsession of some people, mainly intellectuals, to attribute meaning to the game, to interpret a game, what does it mean, is just basically wrong. I don't think that a game means anything. You can say a particular game like the Soccer World Cup final of 1954 meant a lot for many Germans then, and you can remember that. But when I'm in the stadium, it is really about presence, not so much of presence in the sense of time in a temporal sense, but about presence. These are bodies who come towards you, who move away from you. These are bodies uh, with which you are in a community. I mean, you are in the stadium, your life in the stadium. Um, I think it's normally the, the crowd noises, the importance of the crowd noises overestimated, but yet you are there. You are part of the event. And I think it is from this angle uh, that one can approach uh, with some chances of, of producing intelligent insights and hypotheses the fascination of sports, not only of team sports. Now that we're talking about the physical aspect of sports, let's get to one of the main aspects of your book in praise of athletic beauty, and that's the beauty of athletic performance. Tell us what you mean by beauty in sports and what what it is to be beautiful in sports. I mean, let me first mention two premises. I think this is important to get a good approach to, to the topic and to the thesis. In the first place, um, that book that you're mentioning started out with my question, why is sports and especially life events in sports about one of the very few things in my life that can derail me in, in a positive sense. I mean, as you know, I hope I don't look like, but I'm normally very structured. I know every 10 minutes what I do, everything is planned. I don't lose time normally, except uh, for sports events. So I thought, why is this so irresistible? I had no intention on earth when I started that book, when I started thinking about that book, to come out with beauty, because it may sound, oh, the humanities professor wants to do something for sports and says the beauty is what fascinates them. So I started out saying what interests me. The general intellectual hypothesis was when was then it was compensation. So losers in life love to identify with winners in the game. And I found that insulting for me personally. I mean, I'm not really such a loser in life, I hope. And uh, it's also not, and some people say, oh, you can let your emotions out. I mean, as you know, I'm not so bad at letting my emotions <laughs> out anyway. So I wanted to know what, and, and then I ended up being surprised. And, well, for example, one of the great all-time philosophers, Immanuel Kant, uh, describes as aesthetic experience, applies completely not only to the way in which I'm watching a game on TV and above all in the stadium, but I think it applies for the way that most fans, also the non-intellectuals, those on the cheap seats, how, how they are participating. So that is one thing that I find important as a promise. So this is not to say something positive about sports, but I think uh, this is the central fascination. And then, of course, for different sports, you will have to figure out what exactly this aesthetic experience is like. I think the central element in that sense in team sports, different from boxing, different from skiing or whatever you might watch, 
the central element is the emergence of the beautiful play. And that means the emergence of a form that consists of multiple bodies. So it's not just a play cannot be just one player. There's also the defensive players who try to avoid that, for example, even if it's one player who does a dribbling or whatever. And it is an event, meaning that you do not know when the play starts and begins to emerge, that it will really be fulfilled, that it will really become a form. And it is also, in spite of all the repeats, irreversible. I mean, you know when it begins to articulate itself, when it begins to show up, that it will vanish. And when it has vanished, you can, of course, watch it again in repetition, but the event will never be there because you already know it was a beautiful play. You bring up the idea of sudden moves, mm -hmm. um, which you describe as shifting from or oscillating between invisibility and a sudden threat. And I think that's a little bit of what you were just talking about. But could you talk about that sudden move and what it does for fans and spectators? I was emphasizing in the book, if I remember correctly, the suddenness, because once I... I had this hypothesis and the impression that it was about uh, aesthetic experience, not exclusively but predominantly. Then, you know, I was starting to think about, so what has been discussed in aesthetics? And suddenness uh, has become over the past 10, 20 decades in the reflection about beauty an important criterion. This is also not only to be associated with movement. I think we all know that, for example, a painting, a picture that we like. So we can come back to it. But uh, if we are honest, we know that it will not always hit us the way it hit us maybe the first time we loved it. To tell you an anecdote, when my, my, my younger son was four years old, we went to the Louvre and there was a long line uh, in front of the Mona Lisa. And he said, oh, Daddy, I want to see it. I said, boy, this is such a long line. It's going to be boring and you only have a second. And then finally, when it was his turn... He turned around and said, Daddy, she smiled to me. And there was this suddenness. I mean, he didn't have this expectation, but something unexpected happened, and it happened for a moment. It does not necessarily have to be produced by surprising movements. I mean, this is what happens in sports. But I think this suddenness is a much more central and permanent component of what we call aesthetic experience, which in sports is produced by the surprising moves, also by the playbook. I mean, this is why you keep the playbook secret, because you want to surprise your opponent, but also by surprising your opponent, of course, surprise your fans in a positive way. If there's anyone who knows how to think off the cuff and make a beautiful play out of sudden, unexpected circumstances, it is... Andrew Luck, class of 2012, Stanford, and quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. I got a chance to catch up with Andrew in between training sessions. So I first just wanted to know if you would personally describe sports as beautiful. And if so, what beauty do you as an athlete find in sports? Yeah, okay. Well, I think I think beauty can, you know, it probably is subjective <laughs> to, to different folks. I know in my mind, I, I do think there is something beautiful about sports. I think you find a lot of raw emotion. Uh, I think that can be beautiful, you know, on, on both ends of the spectrum euphoria, sadness, disappointment. So, you know, I, I think sports can peel the, peel the layers away on, on, on that emotion. I think the beauty of teamwork is incredibly relevant in sports. I know in football uh, especially. I know that's what 
that teamwork aspect is what attracts me to football so much, and I think why I love the game. And it's a great example of that, I think, in our society. Teamwork, working together, trying to accomplish a, a goal. So do you find that beauty in movement as well? And is there are there certain types of movements in sports, like physicality, that you really admire or find beautiful? Yeah, there are. You know, I really admire the, the, the basketball players that are 6'8", six, 6'9", six, you know, 280 pounds, run like gazelles and jump around and, and look so smooth in the way they operate. I, I always very impressed to get a kick out of watching those massive, massive human beings move in a much more coordinated <laughs> manner than, than I feel like I could ever move. Uh, so I, I definitely think there's a great beauty in that. I love watching gymnastics. My girlfriend was a gymnast at Stanford, and I had never really watched gymnastics before coming to college. And But, but watching it and watching the meets, I always came away so impressed. Float, seemingly fly in the air off of bars and mm-hmm. or captivate an audience with a floor routine or stay on a four-inch wide beam, you know, which, which is getting on a four-inch wide beam is a, is a nightmare I have. <laughs> so I think a lot of beauty in the movement of athletes. I think, too, in the position I play at quarterback, a lot of what we do is rehearsed over and over again, you know, in a drop back, a, a five-step drop. It's, you know, do it countless, countless of times, practice and by ourselves and full speed, half speed, walk speed. And I think it can be a thing of beauty when, when that drop times up perfectly with the receiver's route and everything seems to go right and the, and the ball gets out of your hand and gets in the wide receiver's hand and good things happen. It's a kind of magic, isn't it? When the, <laughs> when the ball leaves and hits its mark, it's amazing to me as a football fan when I watch that happen and I watch the plays unfold. It's, it's kind of unbelievable. How much of learning these movements as a quarterback is emulating other quarterbacks that you admire and how much of it is about creativity because I know sometimes I hear quarterbacks being admired for having some kind of different way to move you know taking a different number of steps or being more quick to release how much of it is being able to do it the right way and how much of it is being creative about the way you do it yeah you know I think the base is being able to rehearse you know what is taught by our quarterback coaches what you see guys like Tom Brady and Peyton emulate how, how they drop back and, and how other quarterbacks drop back I think with certain variations here and there but how you get back to the launch point per se where in a perfect world you'd want to throw the ball from I think the creativity comes about when things break down when a blitz comes that your protection's not designed to pick up or uh, or someone gets beat on the offensive line which which rarely happens for the Indianapolis Colts <laughs> or in my days at Stanford but but every now and then does uh, and then I think the creativity comes in you know as any football fan knows the pocket in the NFL and even you know high level college football is rarely a clean place how often do you get to see a quarterback just stand in the same spot and, and deliver the ball so I, I think the creativity really comes from a breakdown in protection or a, or a free guy running at you. So that brings us into a question I had for you, which is about um, what the role is of logic and intellect and strategy 
for a quarterback. For example, like when quarterbacks are praised by analysts for their intelligence, what are they referring to? What's the importance of those things for a quarterback? You know, I, you know, I think uh, every team has game plans going in the games, and, and we spend probably 75% of our time in the meeting rooms watching film, going over game film and practice film, and, and then, you know, maybe a quarter of the time or less actually out on the field. And so, you know, strategy and understanding how, how you're trying to attack a defense and also understanding how the defense is trying to attack you is, is a huge, huge part of, of playing football. And as quarterbacks, I think it, you, know, you are the, I guess for lack of a better word, the on-field general. Everything seems to run through you. You know, when I think of an intellect in the quarterback, I think of, you know, watching a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady where he seems to know what the defense is doing before, <laughs> before the defense you know, even knows. Every, everything's so well orchestrated and seamless and, and smooth and you can get plays called quickly. You can get to the line and, and get people to jump off sides. You can adjust, you know, your play mid-cadence to respond to a look the defense is showing you and be successful. So I, I do think that strategy part of the game, the intellect, the ability to uh, see something on the defense, diagnose it as a, as a clue or a key for what they're about to do, and then adjust the offense accordingly uh, is, is a big part uh, of playing the game. When those unexpected things happen, you know, you have your strategy, you have your plays, but you get out there and... For example, you realize that the defense knows what you're up to and you yeah. have to make a change. You talked a little bit about how creativity comes into play there as a team leader. How about communication skills? How are communication skills important for you, both leading up to the game and in game time situations? Massive. <laughs> Probably couldn't understate the importance of communicating in a, in a game like football. You know, not just player to player, but, you know, coach to player, coaches to coaches. It's, it, I think, so much of a team's success or failure relies on you know, your, your communication levels and skill. You know, we, we obviously communicate a lot during the week talking about strategy when we as an offense always have what we call a contingency plan, a plan for what if we've been preparing all week to see these three things and they give us a fourth thing that we've never seen or a fifth or a sixth or a seventh. What, what will we do to combat it? So we practice their contingency plan, and it usually involves a simpler way of attacking, a, a way that's sort of bread and butter that, that seems to work, plays that seem to work versus everything that can be thrown at you. And so when, when that time comes, you communicate. And, you know, I think we all, I know as far as in-game communication, we sit on the sidelines, we'll look at some pictures, talk to the coaches, coaches to players, and players to players, and, and say, hey, this is what they're giving us, and this is how we need to respond. And I've realized, too, if you don't ask the questions, and you know, that's as much a fault of you as you're not getting the answers. Thank you so much, Andrew. No, my pleasure. Well, good job not buying that fake. Two wide receivers, two backs. Pitch left to Gerhardt. It's a reverse and a throw. They're going for Luck. Diving catch by Andrew Luck at the 10-yard line. What is it about sports that harnesses all of these emotions and all of this attention from us? Well, I mean, uh, I was talk. I have been talking so far of one aspect, and that is the beauty of the movement. This is the aspect that I'm developing in the book, but I will confess in public that I have another book about sports in mind that I would like to write before it gets too late. 
and that would be a book about drama in sports. This, I think, is another fascination, and the drama in sports you could associate with the word destiny. Destiny in the sense that things happen on the field, things happen in an athletic event that become irreversible. You have drama in sports in a way that is different from drama on a stage because drama on a stage we know well there is the text by Shakespeare and they're going to perform that. Of course something sometimes something happens on the stage and they say oh my god I will never forget this movement of the actor on the stage. But in sports everything is like that. So I think a second dimension that fascinates us is this drama And I would say drama in the sense of naked destiny. I mean, there's no excuse. What happens, happens. And uh, you can't explain it, but that doesn't really matter. All that matters is what happens on the field in a very specific moment. And I would, to conclude, not our conversation, I hope, uh, mention this third dimension, and this is to be part of a mystical body. Part of a mystical body being part of a crowd where oftentimes you're capable of doing certain things, not only bad things, because we always talk about how dangerous crowds might be, that uh, you you would not be able to do in a different situation. And last year, I took my wife and my daughter in Rio to the Maracana, the big stadium where the Soccer World Cup ended, and we were in a very rough crowd of a Rio team, Flamengo, And all of a sudden, they started jumping and dancing. And I was concerned about my girls. And and then they were chanting dirty songs in Portuguese. Now, can you believe it? Neither my wife nor my daughter speak Portuguese, but they were singing along. I mean, that is what I call the mystical body. And that being there is part of the fascination of sports that you forego uh, if you only watch it on TV at home. And I think this is the very reason why public viewing has now become so popular. There was a million people in Berlin watching the World Cup final together in a crowd. And that, of course, became a mystical body. Thank you very much. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks very much. And I love talking, especially about sports. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. You may remember that Sepp referred to a stadium in Brazil called the Maracanã. Human Angle contributor Tom Winterbottom is a literary scholar who specializes in Brazilian culture and urban life. For our In the Field segment today, Tom tells us more about the stormy history lived in two Brazilian stadiums and what it reveals about our shared passion for sports. At the 2014 World Cup, Brazil's 7-1 embarrassment by Germany in the semi-final was seen by the world. The defeat was a big deal in Brazil, leaving fans shell-shocked as it marked a humiliating low point in a sport that they used to play with scintillating style. Ever since their first of five World Cup wins in 1958, Brazil's free-flowing attack-minded soccer came to represent the beautiful game, or as they call it, the Jogo Bonito. That style of play, however, was fundamentally undermined last July in the humiliation and destruction by Germany, an opponent that was tactically, technically and physically superior. The defeat was unexpected in both the ridiculousness of the scoreline and in the sense of implosion and exposure that afflicted the Brazilian team. They had stumbled unimpressively through their games until then, and the defeat put an end to any sense of momentum that they had. The game scarred the team, the coach, and the stadium. The Mineirão in Belo Horizonte will always evoke that game. In Rio de Janeiro, the most symbolic of stadiums is also identified with a national tragedy, 
It is July 16th, 1950. As the expectation mounts to fever pitch, the biggest crowd to see a soccer match, upwards of 200,000 people cram into the unfinished Maracanã Stadium. They are there to see Brazil win the World Cup against their neighbours and rivals Uruguay. Shortly after half-time, Brazil take the lead and the crowd erupts. Obdulio Varela, Uruguay's talismanic captain, argues with the referee after the goal to take the wind out of Brazil's sails. Their momentum, and the crowd's fervour, breaks after five minutes of tactical deliberation. The crowd's anxiety grows. Then, a disbelieving silence falls over the Brazilian fans as two late goals give Uruguay the World Cup. It was one of sport's great upsets. In both 1950 and 2014, shock, disbelief and silence ravaged the stadiums. Momentum is a slippery and variable concept. It is easily broken, inherently fragile, but yet remains a frequent point of reference in sports and often comes into clearer relief in the unique stadium space. Perhaps momentum relates to the idea of being in the zone, or lost in focused intensity as Zepp calls it. It is somewhere out of the realms of consciousness. Ask a team or a player to explain how they did something and if they can replicate it, and often words and actions fail them. I guess you had to be there, you might say, to a friend having failed to describe the play. Stadiums at once facilitate and curate these experiences for both the crowd and the athletes in a constant dynamic dialogue. Those memorable performances come through an athlete or group of athletes achieving a peak of indescribable momentum however long or short it may be. Perhaps it is from those special moments, in those special places, whether getting caught up in the elation or the tragedy, that sports become a life passion. I'm Angela Becerra-Vidigar, and this has been The Human Angle. The show is recorded in the studios of KZSU Stanford and is made possible by the generous support of the Stanford Humanities Center and the Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages at Stanford University. Special thanks for this episode go to Stanford Athletics and KZSU Sports. I'm the executive producer. Tom Winterbottom is the producer and co-writer and Corey Goldman is the consulting producer. Make sure to tune in again for the next episode of The Human Angle.